going through the book of Revelation, and we've made it to chapter 10. So if you want to open your Bibles to chapter 10, that's where we'll start. But we have new people coming in all the time, and of course, and, and uh, people that have missed some things that have gone before. So we're going to have to recap to get to chapter 10. The recap will be about 50 minutes, and then the service will be about five. That's not the plan. That's just a joke, but you never know. I think the recaps is good for us as anything uh, that we go into that's uh, new information, however, because it's good to get uh, these things established in our hearts and be sure of what the Bible says and be well-established is the best word I know to use, established in what we believe and why, because you don't get these things the first time you hear them. So to begin a recap, John's on the island of Patmos, been exiled for the testimony of Jesus. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day and he hears a voice from heaven that sounds like a trumpet. That voice says, come up here. Well, that would imply a change of location, wouldn't it? Somebody said, come up here to you. You would expect you to go from one place to another place. Well, immediately John's caught up into heaven. Now, this is a type of the rapture. And it's interesting that the book of Revelation, uh, the first thing, the first events that the book of Revelation tells us after the letters to the churches is that which we know of or would describe as the rapture. Now, in heaven, he sees God on the throne. He sees the rainbow around the throne. He sees the four beasts around the throne. He describes them. He sees the 24 elders with crowns of gold on their head, which represent the, uh, the church. Twelve elders from the Old Testament, the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve elders from the new church, which represents the apostles. He sees the crystal sea that's mingled with fire. Chapter 15 tells us it's the crystal sea mingled with fire, which signifies that it's of or originates of the Holy Ghost, who is symbolized by fire. Now, that represents the church, has to represent the church. Because the fact that the Holy Ghost uses or impresses John to use the word crystal. Crystal is the only substance that you can't hide a flaw. In fact, crystal magnifies flaws. But remember the Bible says Jesus is coming for a glorious church. A church without spot or wrinkle. That represents the purity of the church. So all these things John sees in heaven before the events that he describes ever begin to unfold. Now the first thing that he sees is a book with seven seals and nobody is worthy to open the book except Jesus. And Jesus opens those seven seals. Now those seven seals take place or run during the, the uh, duration of the seven year period that we know of as the tribulation that the Bible refers to as the tribulation. The first seal that's opened releases the Antichrist. Now, it's interesting that that lines up exactly, harmonizes perfectly with what Paul said, writing to the church, that the Antichrist can't be revealed until the church is taken out of the way. Well, the church is standing before the throne of God, and so the seal that releases the Antichrist is the first thing that's opened. Second seal is the war that Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes, where Russia gathers a coalition of nations and invades Israel from the north, from Syria, or through Syria. 
the coalition group that, he, that uh, is gathered together with Russia is predominantly Islamic nations of the Middle East and Northern Africa and a couple of smattering in, in Asia. And the Bible t- tells us that God in one 24-hour period destroys those armies. Now, if he destroys those armies, and not only does it say he destroys the armies coming down through the northern mountains of Syria, but it tells us that he rains fire and, and brimstone upon the nations that would make up this army. And he leaves only a sixth part. That's 17%. So if we can do the math, that means he destroys 83% of these nations, most of them Islamic nations. God deals with Islam in a moment of time. He deals with it once and for all. Now, that's, those are not all the Islamic nations of the world. You've got India and you've got Pakistan. You've got uh, the Philippines and many of the islands of the sea in that region. But those are not the ones that are causing trouble in the world right now, are they? God deals with what the world considers to be the, the major problems, and, and I believe rightly so. The major problems that are going on in the earth, God deals with it in a moment of time. What an awesome God we have. Well, it tells us that the next seals are famine. There's a food shortage in that part of the world under the Antichrist uh, dominion. It tells us of death being the next seal, the fourth seal that's open. That means people are going to die not only through wars but through a variety of ways. Death will be accelerated. The fifth seal is the tribulation martyrs. Those that are martyred during the tribulation period, most of those occur during the second half of the tribulation. But they're martyred for their testimony of Jesus. The sixth seal is the upheaval of nature, primarily, specifically, the earthquake that takes place on the last day of the tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation. Now, the seventh seal is where seven angels unlock seven different plagues. Now, these are also plagues that are running during the course of the seven years of tribulation. It talks about most of them affecting the earth and the environment. It talks about the first one, the first plague, I believe it is, is where the mountain blows into the sea. It's probably the, uh, uh, something like a volcanic eruption greater than anything that we've known in modern history. It poisons the sea. There's hail and fire mingled with blood. It, it burns up a third of the trees in the grass. The volcano causes the third part of the sea to become blood, so it's obviously a supernatural thing. Lava going into the sea doesn't turn into blood. So this is a work of God. A third part of the creatures in the sea die. The third part of the ships that are in the sea are are destroyed, the people on them. Then it tells us about another star that falls from heaven, and it pollutes the third part of the rivers and the water, the fountains of waters, which means not only is the sea affected in that part of the world, but also the pure drinking water. It tells us of the bitterness that many people die from, and we have to assume that that means poison. The fourth angel... The fourth plague was where a third part of the sun and the moon and the stars are smitten. And so they're 
the heavens are affected in a great way for a third part of the day. Then the fifth angel sounds, the fifth plague takes place. The bottomless pit is opened and it creates what the Bible refers to as tremendous air pollution and smoke. And it tells us that out of that bottomless pit there came locusts upon the earth and they were given power to torment those that had not received the seal of God in their forehead. That seal of God in their forehead is referring to the 144,000 that immediately after the first day of the tribulation when God destroys the Russia's coalition armies where 144,000 Jews are immediately made evangelists. And we don't know how that happens. The Bible indicates or implies that it's through the work of angels, but we don't know for sure. But we do know that the angels have a lot to do with putting the seal of God in their foreheads. So here the devil is working against God's evangelists, 144,000 Jewish evangelists. But it torments men. Now during this time of torment, it says it lasts for five months. And during this time of torment, people will try to destroy themselves, commit suicide, and death is suspended. Only time in the history of mankind that death is suspended. From the time of Adam forward, from the time of Adam's fall forward. Then it tells us that the sixth angel sounds and it releases four angels that are bound in the river Euphrates. They dry up the rivers to make way for the 200 million man army that comes from the east. That 200 million man army is given power to destroy a third of mankind that's still left on the earth. But if you look at a map from the east, that's got to be China. They're the only ones that could... could uh, present that uh, number of army so if you look from the east from China to where Jerusalem is where the battle of Armageddon will take place the last day it comes straight through India so probably the third of the, the earth third of mankind that's left that they have power to destroy are those that they destroy on their way to the Middle East which would be a path straight through India probably Pakistan as well that deals with the majority of the Muslim nations that are left after the Ezekiel 39 event. Then it tells us in chapter 10, it tells us of the next things that will take place. It covers the final plague, the seventh plague of the seventh seal. Now, during this period of time, um, the Antichrist has been in power. He makes a contract or a compact with Israel, the peace treaty with Israel, that's designed to last for seven years. That's always fascinated me. Who makes a peace treaty that's going to have an expiration date? But the Bible indicates that he makes a peace treaty, treaty that's supposed to last for seven years. Folks, the devil knows his time is coming. We need to remind him of that every now and then. He wants to remind you of the things that you've done wrong in your life and how you've missed it and how you don't feel like you measure up to the things of God. Remind him of his future. You remember in Jesus' time here on the earth, there were occasions where he would come to someone that was oppressed of the devil and those evil spirits would speak up in, in the, the person that they inhabited 
And they would ask Jesus. They questioned him. They said, have you come to torment us before the time? Before Jesus ever said a word to them. They said, have you come to torment us before the time? Now, folks, think about what that means. That means as much difficulty as we have with the devil stirring up circumstances and adversity in our life and so forth, the thing that's first and foremost on the evil spirit's minds is that their time is coming. We need to think like they do. Rather than looking at the devil as being some big bad enemy, we need to see him as a temporary uh, opposition whose time is shortly coming. Amen? Amen. Jesus never answered them. He just told them, shut up and come out, and they did. I like his way of dealing with the devil. Shut up and come out. But anyway, the Antichrist is operating. He makes a peace treaty. Everybody is in the world is floored by his diplomatic abilities and his leadership, peaceful leadership abilities. But immediately the 144,000 began to evangelize in Israel and cause him a whole lot of problems. These plagues are taking place almost immediately. Well, I, I, not almost immediately, they begin to occur immediately. Food shortages, water supply messed up, people dying from poisonous water and all of the things too, all of the causes as well. So he's presiding over and leading over the, a region of the world surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, the region surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. He's leading a region of the world that everything's going wrong in. And finally, and I think it has a lot to do with the ecological disasters that take place beginning in the tribulation period. Finally, he invades Israel. He breaks his peace treaty at the halfway mark of the tribulation, invades Israel. Israel is one of the only places in that part of the world, or is the only place in that part of the world that's not affected by some of these environmental disasters. So one reason, outside of just hatred against Israel and against the things of God, but one reason he may be going to Israel is trying to get relief from some of the famines and the plagues that are taking place everywhere else. He goes into Israel with the express purpose of destroying the 144,000. He sets himself up in the temple at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the midway point, and proclaims that he's God. We'll find out in some of the upcoming chapters that at that time he presents an image of the beast he commands everybody to worship him, worship his image. And so you can see that idolatry is very much instituted in a way that we haven't seen since the recorded history of Egypt. Shortly thereafter, we know the 144,000 are at the midpoint of tribulation, but shortly thereafter, we see them caught up into heaven along with the great multitude. So God thwarts his purpose. He delays his invasion into Israel at three and a half year mark with an earthquake. And then the next thing that we see is that the great multitude is caught up into heaven as well. Now in chapter 10, this is going to cover events that occur in the last half of the tribulation period. The 144,000 have been raptured along with the great multitude. And now we'll pick up the story in chapter 10. That only took 20 minutes. 
I'm 30 minutes ahead. (laughs) Chapter 10. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was upon his head and his face was as it were the sun. And his feet as pillars of fire. These are the guys that God has working for him, folks. Not some puny evil spirit that wants to go into the hogs after he's cast out. But these guys. And he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which, are, which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Now, we don't know why that ha- happened that way, Lord, uh, folks. Lord, you're not my Lord. <laughs> the Lord didn't reveal to us why it happened that way. It's one of the unknowns of Revelation. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. Now the word time means delay. He's not suspending time. He's saying the time has come. In other words, he's talking about the end of tribulation period. He's identifying the time period. We're at the end. But in the days of the voice of the seven angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished or completed, as he has declared to his servants, the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. This has got to be a big guy. One foot on the sea and one foot on the earth. The folks don't get the idea that he's standing on the shoreline with his feet dripping and dipping into water. He's a huge angel. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. And it shall make your belly bitter, but it shall be in your mouth sweet as honey. That's probably an indication that the, that the news is not good. It's the truth of the word, but it's not good for the people of the earth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now there's a teaching out there that says John has a future ministry. That verse 11 identifies John to have a future ministry. And some people will say that John is one of the two witnesses that are raised up at the last half of the tribulation. But the language simply means now you can write again. He was commanded not to write what the seven thunders uttered. And the language itself, if there's no greater meaning than just the language that's used, the language is just saying, now write the rest for the nations to see. You decide for yourself. Verse, chapter 11, verse 1. And there was given unto me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and then that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now the holy city is Jerusalem. It's 
always referred to as the holy city. Or any place there's a reference to the holy city, it always means Jerusalem. 42 months is exactly three and a half years. Last half of the tribulation. And I will give power unto my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. Now a thousand three hundred and two score days. I read that wrong. A thousand two hundred and three score days. That's twelve hundred and sixty days. On the Jewish calendar that's three and a half months. I'm sorry three and a half years. Forty two months. Now, the Jewish calendar has 360 days a year as opposed to ours, the Roman calendar, which has 365. They were using 360 at the time that this was written. So he's identifying, saying the second time that these two witnesses shall operate on the earth for three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. That's a reference to Zechariah chapter 4 where it's speaking of Joshua and Zerubbabel as being representatives before God. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out, of their, proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Now let's back up and talk about this a little bit. Remember the Antichrist presents himself for the first three and a half years of the tribulation as a man of peace, a diplomat. That's not to say that he doesn't do violent things. He destroys three of the ten nations that supported him originally when they rise up in revolt and replaces them with three other nations. That may have something to do with uh, a redrawing of boundaries for certain nations. Could be something else. We don't know for sure. But at the three and a half year mark, the midpoint of the tribulation, he's tired of even trying to pretend that he's a man of peace. He's been plagued by these different plagues and seals and different things that have been opened in heaven. It messes up everything that he's trying to do. The book of Revelation is called the Revelation of Jesus. It's not the Revelation of the Antichrist. It's not the Revelation of the Tribulation. It's the Revelation of Jesus. And the story of the, the book of Revelation is that no matter what the devil has done with his greatest agent the antichrist he's a total failure every time the devil tries to show himself as the strong one god does something and shows what a failure he is he's made diplomatic war he's taken steps against the 144,000 and israel which he's always hated even though he made a peace treaty with them and finally at the three and a half year mark he decides to invade israel now what nation makes a peace treaty with some other nation and then invades them we could blame the Russians for it which seems to be the popular thing to do today but they've already been destroyed it's just the way the devil works the peace treaty was just convenient for the antichrist but finally he gets to the point where he says that's it I've had enough he invades Israel. There's an earthquake that takes place that delays the invasion. And then 144,000, which he targeted and wanted to destroy and was the reason he invaded Israel to begin with, is caught up by God into heaven in the rapture. 
Now, there are six or seven different raptures in the Bible. I don't know where we got the idea there can only be one. Some people argue about when the church is going to be raptured. They see where the Bible says that the great multitude was raptured in the midpoint of the tribulation. So they say, well, that has to be the church. Well, there's nothing about the great multitude being raptured that identifies with what Paul said about the church being caught up into heaven. The great multitude doesn't meet Jesus in the air. The dead in Christ don't rise first with the great multitude. But see, the idea has been throughout the church world, the church age, I guess, the predominant idea has been that there's only one rapture. Well, there's not. Enoch was raptured in the Old Testament. He walked with God and was not. Elijah was raptured when the angel with the chariot of fire came and got him. Jesus was raptured. He was caught up into heaven in a cloud with his disciples standing there watching him. Remember, the angels had to show up afterwards and say, what are you standing here looking up into heaven for? Now, that seems like a silly question to me. What else would I be looking at? Jesus just left in a cloud. But the point is, get to work. Then the church is raptured before the tribulation. The great multitude is raptured at the midpoint of the tribulation or just past the midpoint of the tribulation. And you'll see in the, the, there's another rapture concerning the two witnesses. Now, whether, the reason I said there's either six or seven, depending on how you count, is because John experienced a rapture to receive the revelation. Now, whether you want to count that or not as an actual one, that's up to you. But if you count that, there's seven total. If you don't count it, there's six. So here are these two witnesses. God still leaves people on the earth, and there are still people that are saved on the earth during the last half of the tribulation through the ministry of these two witnesses. Now, one of the reasons that it tells us exactly how long they operate is because they are the countdown. And I firmly believe, the Bible doesn't specifically say so, but you judge this for yourself. I firmly believe that every day the the two witnesses are saying, this is day one, this is day two, this is day three. Letting people know just how long they have. That's not a mystery. It's not a secret. It's given to us right there. Wouldn't be a secret for them either. It won't be a secret to the world. So it says again in verse 5. If any man will hurt them. Fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them. He must in this manner be killed. These are not your ordinary guys. Now, who are these two witnesses? Well, there's a lot of different ideas, but the fact is nobody knows. Some people make the case for Enoch and Elijah because they didn't experience death, and the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. Well, that's possible, but it's not definitive. Some people say because of chapter previous chapter, chapter 10 and verse 11, that one of the two witnesses is John. Well, John's already died. Just because the Bible said that he has some future ministry or some additional ministry. That's probably already been fulfilled in the things that he continued to write. But it's just as likely and in my thinking more probable. That just as in one day God raised up 144,000 Jewish evangelists. From people that didn't know God. People that had no inkling about the things of God. But were instantly saved and became officers in the work of God. It's just as likely in my thinking that he's going to raise up two witnesses out of people that nobody knows. 
Again, you'll have to decide that for yourself because the Bible doesn't say so. Verse 6. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Three and a half years. And have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. For three and a half years, the Antichrist is trying to destroy these guys. And every time anything gets close to them, it's destroyed by the fire that comes out of their mouth. But finally, three and a half days before the end of tribulation, He's successful to kill them in killing them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. He leaves them on display for three and a half days for the world to see. Now, folks, remember, the Antichrist has proclaimed himself to be God, but he can't control the rain. The two witnesses are controlling that. He doesn't have power for fire to come out of his mouth but the two witnesses do he's a pretty lousy God and it's shown to be so for everybody that's willing to see now notice it says the city that Jesus was crucified in is called Sodom in Egypt why is that why would it Jerusalem be called Sodom in Egypt and if Jerusalem is Sodom in Egypt why would God care about them God didn't care about Sodom he provided a way for the righteous in Sodom to, be, to escape. But he didn't spare that city. He didn't spare Egypt. Egypt was the one that he poured out the ten plagues in the time of Moses. So why would he care about Jerusalem if it's called Sodom and Egypt? Well, I think the answer to that lies in understanding why it's called Sodom and Egypt. Daniel chapter 9 tells us about the Antichrist that he has no desire for women. He's a practicing homosexual. When he invades Israel and sets up his headquarters in Jerusalem, homosexuals from all over the world, or all over that part of the world at least, flood into the city. It becomes their place of refuge. Finally, their guy has proclaimed himself to be the guy, literally God. And remember also at the midpoint of tribulation when he proclaims himself to be God, he's established the image of the beast which is an image unto himself. So idolatry is at the forefront of the world in a way that's never been seen since the early days of Egypt. So it's important for us, I believe, to recognize that when the Bible calls Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt, it's become Sodom, the place of idolatry, the headquarters of idolatry, and it's become Sodom. Wait a minute, what, did I say that wrong? became Egypt the headquarters of idolatry and Sodom the headquarters of homosexuality because of the work of the Antichrist not because of the work of the Jews not because of the desire of the Jews it's Sodom and Egypt because of the Antichrist and his presence so their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt where also our Lord was crucified and they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three and a half days, three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. They're so glad that something they tried to do finally worked, they think, 
that they leave them on display for all the world to see. This may be the only fake news that CNN, the only thing that CNN doesn't do that's fake news. They'll show this worldwide. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another. Look at the rejoicing that's taking place. Because that these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. This is the first of the two oh snap moments. That closed the tribulation period for the Antichrist. And they heard a great voice from heaven. Here's the last of the raptures. They heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour there was a great earthquake. This is the sixth seal earthquake. And the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant which were affrighted, were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now these woes have to do with, uh, I think it's chapter 8 and chapter 9. Yeah, it's chapter 8 and chapter 9 where it tells us about the, the seven plagues. And uh, verse 12 says in chapter 9, One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes after, thereafter. It's talking about the, the fifth, sixth, and the seventh plagues that come upon the earth. Six of them have been identified, but the seventh one is about to be identified now. Now, before I get into that, let me mention that, uh, that phrase where it says, The remnant of, of them that were left were affrighted. Who's left? It says they were affrighted, frightened in other words, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The Bible tells us that at the tribulation, when the tribulation period starts, the 144,000 begin their ministry as soon as Russia is defeated. It's the destruction of Russia and the coalition armies identified in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that apparently triggers the salvation of the 144,000 in their ministry. They minister for the first three and a half years, three and a half plus a little bit of the tribulation period. After they're gone, after they're caught up with the great multitude, those that are saved in their ministry, then the two witnesses begin to operate. And they operate in the earth for three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. There are people that are saved through the witness of the, 200, of the two witnesses, but not all of Israel except God during their time of ministry. We'll find in future chapters, but I think it bears mention here, that when the two witnesses are caught up, the remnant, I'm sorry, when the great multitude is caught up at the three and a half year period, the remnant of Israel is hidden away. God provides a place for them to be fed and watered and taken care of in Israel where the Antichrist has set up his headquarters. Some of those remnants may be saved during the ministry of the two witnesses, but the ones that are not is the remnant that are frightened and give glory to God. Paul made a statement in, in Romans 9, I believe it was, 
when he was talking about he'd be willing to give up his salvation for the Jews if it were possible. Talking about walking in love. The very people that are bringing the persecution and destruction on him or trying to are the people that he'd be willing to get, give up his salvation if they could only know Jesus. He makes a statement there, and I'm sure it was because of the love that he had for his own people, that God reveals to him that all of Israel will be saved. All of Israel will be saved. Well, when are they going to be saved? Clearly, they're not saved by the time the church gets out of here. And since there's a remnant of Israel left after this great multitude is raptured, they're not all saved then either. The remnant is the, the last remaining segment of the Jewish population that's left on the earth. But when they see the rapture of the two witnesses on the last day of the tribulation period, apparently that's the thing that brings them in. They give glory to the God of Israel. That brings us to the last and final plague. This is the last and final plague on the last day of the tribulation. And remember that this, the sixth plague that the angel releases is the four angels that drive the Euphrates River that signals the, the beginning or the creation, the formation of the 200 million man army from the east. They've been coming all the time through India and Pakistan making their way to the Battle of Armageddon, the final culmination, the end point of the tribulation period. Their, enemy, or their purpose is the same as the purpose of the Antichrist. They're not under the Antichrist rule. The nation in which they come from, which in my thinking has to be China, is not being governed by the Antichrist. The Antichrist is not a world ruler, but he wants to be. He sees his greatest army, his greatest foe, greatest adversary is what I meant to say, as being Israel. And so he concentrates his efforts to destroy them and operate from Jerusalem as a headquarters. But the 200 million man army is operating at the, the instruction of the leader of China who sees the destruction of the world and the things that are going on as a perfect opportunity to take control of the whole earth. So they've been steadily moving forward, knowing that their adversary, or thinking that their adversary, their last adversary, would be the Antichrist and his forces. But by the time they get to the Battle of Armageddon, converge at the Battle of Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, they join together against a common enemy, which is Jesus. So these two forces, the Antichrist armies and the 200 million man armies, join together to fight Jesus, and I'm sure they both have the idea that after that's over, we'll fight it out between ourselves. Now, that's the, the, the backdrop for the final seal being opened, or the final plague being released. Verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, what that means is this last plague has to do with the kingdoms of the world. Not the kingdoms of the Antichrist, the kingdoms of the world. God's going to deal once and for all with the kingdoms of the world in this final event. And the four and twenty elders, representatives of the church, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come. 
past, present, future. Because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. It's interesting that the Bible indicates that the representatives of the church are again in heaven when these events take place in the earth. And the nations were angry and thy wrath has come. The wrath is reference to the battle of Armageddon. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. The dead is talking about is the righteous dead during the tribulation period. And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, the two witnesses, and to thy saints, those that were saved through their ministry. And them that fear thy name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. This is a reference to the 200 million man army, which was given power over a third of, the man, a third of mankind that was left. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now what is the final plague? I'm going to read to you from Zechariah chapter 14. Which describes what the event or how the event at the battle of Armageddon will take place. Verse 12. Zechariah 14:12, And this shall be the plague. Wherewith the Lord shall smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Think Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the final plague on the final day of the tribulation period. 200 million man army, all the Antichrist armies gathered together. We don't know what those are, but many nations gathered together or joined together under his control. Millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people. The Bible says in another place that Jesus consumes them with the word of his mouth, the sword that comes out of his mouth. One word, and their flesh melts away. Folks, the devil is not an equal match for God. Now, the devil knows this stuff. He's not in the dark about any of it. He knows it. And there's not a thing in the world he can do about it. So he works overtime to try to keep you from knowing it. To make you think that he and God are equal opponents, equal in strength, equal in ability, and nothing could be further from the truth. Now, there's one last thing I want to share with you about this, and that is God could just as easily have consumed the flesh of the earth in a moment of time without the seven years of tribulation. He could catch the church up and do away with everybody else. Why didn't he do it that way? Well, one idea would be that he'd miss all the saints, that are, those that are saved during the tribulation period. He cares about them. But then we could say, okay, then why not after the great multitude is caught up? Well, the idea behind that might be that the remnant would be lost those that aren't saved except through the ministry of the two witnesses. But I've got another thing that I want to 
present to you for your consideration. And that is this. We all want instant results in prayer, don't we? Anybody that says they don't is lying. Everybody wants an answer right now. But it's not an uncommon thing for God to let things run their course before the answer comes. It's certainly the fact that during the tribulation period, he lets the devil do everything that he can possibly do. We haven't even gotten into the mark of the beast and the things that happened in the last half of the tribulation from the devil's standpoint. Because the Bible tells us in these later chapters of Revelation that after the great multitude is caught up, the devil gets so mad that he infuses the Antichrist with supernatural abilities that the earth has never seen before. And God lets him. God's not concerned about how things look. He's not concerned about whether things look like they're getting worse and worse and worse. Because he knows his word is true. And he knows that it only takes a moment of time for his word to be realized. Now that's not the way we like for things to be. We pray for healing and we don't want to get worse. We pray for financial blessing and we, want, we don't want to get any further in debt. We want things to get better and better and better from that point forward. And that's not always the way it works. And we need to be aware of that. Because if we're not aware of that, if we're not prepared for that, then that's the place where a lot of people give up. They think that, they, that because they prayed and things got, started getting worse, they think that means God didn't hear them. And nothing could be further from the truth. If you think about it, every prayer that we pray, every stand we take in faith is a test of faithfulness. It's a test on our part of whether or not we'll hold fast to the word. It's a test on God's part of whether or not he'll be faithful to honor his word. And the devil knows that the only chance he's got against any one of you is to get you to turn loose, let go of your faithfulness tests before the answer comes. Because he knows God's part's already established. With all the things that the devil has done from the beginning of man. His armies. His servants. Those that have bought into his plan. Their flesh is consumed off their bodies in a moment of time. And God, Jesus is then the ruler of the earth. And sets up his thousand year reign here on the earth. And notice the reaction of the elders. They fell on their faces and worshiped God. If they're representative of the church, then that should be our action as well, should it not? That should be our reaction to every faith test. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. This may not have gone the way that I wanted it to go. Certainly may not be going the way my flesh wants it to go. But you were faithful. Can you say amen? Amen. amen.